0: Now here God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 9, continuing our study in the book of Samuel. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power, and he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come. Let us return, lest my father cease caring about the donkeys and become worried about us. And he said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, Look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer, for he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you for your word and we continue to stand in awe of its majesty and its power to instruct, to correct, to encourage, to comfort. And Father, we come before your word today as students to listen to your voice, the very words of the Holy Spirit recorded for us in this history. So Father, bring us under your its submission. Guide my thoughts and my words. Deliver us all from error. Deliver us from distraction. Deliver us from every evil way. And may we hear and receive your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. People of God, in most simplistic children's stories, the good guys are all good and the bad guys are all bad but there's not much, much depth to the characters. There's not a lot of insight into their motivations for being bad or good. There, there isn't a great deal of nuance or complexity to the big bad wolf. He's just bad and big and a wolf. I mean, that's all you need to know about the big bad wolf, right? There's, there's not a lot of complexity to the evil stepmother in Cinderella or the, or the wicked witch in, in their original stories. You have in these stories the antagonist who represents the evil that must be thwarted. This is the evil that must be guarded against. This is the evil that must be defeated. And the good characters on the other side are just simply good. They don't succumb to any temptation. They don't struggle with any uh, morality. You know who to cheer for right from the bat when you see them, like the old Westerns, the black and white Westerns. You had the black hats and the white hats just so you know you can keep it clear who you're supposed to be pulling for and who you're supposed to hate. Black Bart is just bad, and it doesn't matter why he's bad. We just, we just know he's bad, and that's, that's good enough. But once you grow up and once you move into more mature, sophisticated stories with deeply developed characters, there's much more complexity. There's much more struggle between right right and wrong a bad character might start out bad but may repent and may find redemption a- another character might start out good like the ideal hero but they're tempted and they fall and they don't ever ask for forgiveness and they don't ever seek restitution and there and there's everything in between stories like these are more like real life than simplistic childish stories no man and no woman is static no one, no one. On, on the one hand, no one is sinless. Also, no one is completely uh, uh, beyond redemption, as far as we know. Rather, everyone is always changing. Everyone, you all, every one of us in this room, we're changing, and we're growing in different dimensions, and... We're taking a step back in other dimensions. We're losing ground. We're losing battles. Sometimes we win and sometimes we lose. And in all of these various ways, we're being shaped and fashioned and formed. And we're either growing softer to the, the pleadings and the wooings of God's Holy Spirit, or we harden our heart against God's Holy Spirit. In all these ways, we're, we're changing. We're not static. Uh, and we're growing and, and learning. But... Even though we would say, yeah, that's, that's true, we tend to see other people like the characters in children's stories. You're, you're all bad, and you will only ever be bad because I don't like you. And because I don't like you, you will never change. And I don't trust you to change. And that's just the way you are. And I don't give you space to grow. That's, that's way. Or or you're just all good. You're my hero. And you can do nothing wrong. That's so, that's so simplistic. And it's so immature. In real life and in reality, people change for better and for worse. And this is borne out in the scriptures. People in the Bible are not colorless robots. They're normal people in the Bible. And that's sometimes very hard to remember. It's very hard to remember that Moses was just a man. Obviously an extraordinary man, but but a man nonetheless. David was a man. Solomon was a man. And uh, they're, they're normal people in the Bible. And there are some whose stories begin in a situation of wrath and judgment. And they move to grace. And there are some who start out in a very favorable position. They start out in grace, and they go to wrath, and then back to grace. And sometimes they move from grace to wrath and stay there. Just like normal people, we can think of examples of every one of those stories. And this is so important for us to remember, especially when we come to the story of King Saul, because you and I are far more familiar with the story of his later years, where he antagonized David and he chases after David and he tries to to ruin David's life in every dimension. We don't typically recall, we don't remember much about his early years and the things that the Bible says about uh, about Saul when he first comes on the scene. We assume that, because Saul was bad later on, that he must have started out bad. It, he must have always been malicious, malignant. He must have always been hateful. Uh, and, uh, but the scriptures testify that not only do people change, but Saul is one of those people who changed. And he's a prime example of a man who goes through various shifts and various transformations in his life. And we're just on the front end. Of, the study of, our, of our study of the life of Saul. So I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, groundbreaking and foundation laying today. We're going to, we're going to turn over some soil. We're going to lay a foundation today that we're going to build on in future chapters and in future studies of, of the book of Samuel. But let's go back and remember a couple of weeks ago what we read about. Why are we in the spot that we're in presently in Israel? What is it that brings Saul onto the scene? Israel, just in the last chapter as we read, Israel rejected the kingship of Yahweh over them and they rejected God's servant, God's representative, Samuel. And they said, we want a king just like all the other nations. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles for us. Why is this so arrogant? Why is this so rude? Why is it so sinful? Two reasons. First of all, God has been fighting their battles for them. They've seen Yahweh go out and knock over Dagon. They've seen him decapitate the Philistines and and liquefy the Philistine army. He he shouted and thundered at the Philistines and they melted before him. They've seen God fight their battles for them. The second reason that this is a, a sinful request is it's premature. God told them that their king would come from Judah. Also, God said that no man may serve in the congregation of Israel who is the son of, uh, of, of, uh, of infidelity. And we all remember the nonsense with Judah and Tamar. So we haven't gotten to the 10th generation. That was the, that was the prohibition. You can't be a king or you can't serve in the congregation of Israel until the 10th generation after, after there's been an illegitimate son. So we've got, we've got this problem. We're not, we, we're not 10 generations removed from Judah yet. But... When we get there, God will, give us, God will give us a king because he's promised that the king will come from Judah. Well, the, the request for a king was sinful. It was premature. It was, it was hateful towards Samuel, God's servant and yet they still make it. And so uh, Yahweh says to Samuel, Well tell them about the kind of king that they're going to get. And so Samuel, in that famous passage, tells them about what this king, if they want a king like the nations, here's what he's going to do. He's going to take, he's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to take your lands. He's going to take your vineyards. He's going to take all of your treasures, and he's going to give them to his servants. He's not going to give. He's going to take, and he's going to take, and he's going to take. And yet, the people are obstinate and they're stubborn, and they say, yes, that's exactly what we want. We want a king like all the nations. Give us that king. And so God tells Samuel, listen to their request, listen to their voice, and go make them a king. So Samuel sends the people home, and then he, uh, we, we have the hope that God will reveal the right man to Samuel, to anoint. Now in this chapter, we meet the man that God has chosen for them. When Saul comes on the scene, he's like a new Adam. From all appearances, Saul is a perfect man. We get to know his family first. And we read just a few minutes ago that his father was a mighty man, a man of power a man of prominence and influence and wealth. And then we read about Saul, that he was a handsome man, tall and good-looking. And this is, what, this is what the Bible tells us. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From the shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, that's, he's a stunning physical specimen. He looks the part. We don't always get physical descriptions of people in the Bible. In fact, we don't even get much of a physical description of Jesus. Maybe outside of Isaiah 53 and a few other places, we get some hints. But when we do get a physical description, it means that we're to take note. It means stop and recognize this. Saul looks like a king. He's going to be the kind of guy that people want to look up to and respect. We think photogenic leaders, photogenic presidents, well, that's just a uh, That's just a feature of the television age. They were all ugly before, but not really. I mean, all all of the US presidents were taller than average. Uh, They tend to be um, more uh, handsome than average, which just tells you what the Pickens were like in Lincoln's day, right? I mean, just, uh, (laughs) have you seen some of those photos, some of those Civil War generals? They just looked like that. Lincoln was the best they could come up with. But um, we want our leaders to look a certain way today and and that was no different then. Saul had the look. He looked like a king. He looked presidential. There's a similar description we get of Moses and later David. We read that Moses, Moses was a beautiful child. Exodus tells us. And David was ruddy, had bright eyes, and he was good looking. And so when the, when the author in the scriptures goes out of his way to tell us about someone's physical attractiveness, what he's saying is this is the ideal human specimen. This is the ideal man. Not that God can't use people with deformities and physical blemishes. He most certainly does. And even with David's attractiveness later, Samuel's going to point out, remember, Samuel's going to underscore, he's not simply looking at David's appearance, but he's looking at David's heart. So we get the comment about David's appearance, but then Samuel reminds us that he's looking at the heart. But still, in this perfection, there's this symbolism of the new Adam. Adam was created in perfection. Adam was physically flawless. And and also when you bring sacrifices to the altar, sacrifices represent the people. And what kind of sacrifices are you to bring to the altar? The lame, the, the, the sacrifice with one eye, the sacrifice with an ear missing? No, you bring a perfect sacrifice. That represents us and we're giving our best. So we bring a sacrifice without blemish or without defect. The priest himself had to be physically perfect to minister before the altar of God. He couldn't have any physical deformity. If you had any physical deformity, I'm sorry, you can't serve as priest in this capacity. Well, that, is that ugly? Is that mean? Is that is that is that rude? No, 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 no. All of this symbolism points us to the need for a perfect man. We need a perfect priest. We need a perfect sacrifice. Uh, and, and of course, We only get that when we get to Jesus. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice without any blemish. Jesus is the perfect high priest without any sin. Well, Saul is not that Messiah. He's not that completely perfect, sinless man. But he is the king that Israel's going to get for now. And he's supposed to point Israel forward to that coming king. We'll see that he doesn't do a great job of that later. But for now, Saul's perfections are not something to be suspicious of. I think, I think typically when we read that, it's like, oh yeah, see, he's so outwardly perfect, but he's inwardly defiled. Well, that's not the point. Uh, David was physically perfect. Uh, he, David was physically attractive, but his, his heart was right before God. So when we, meet, when we meet Saul, we see that this is a good thing. He's designed by God to be king. Add to this that he is a man who is a good and faithful son. And we see that right away because he cares for his father's property. He cares for his father's animals. This is a refreshing sight. We've, we're, we're nine, ten chapters into the book of Samuel, and we have yet to meet a faithful son. Eli's sons were unfaithful. Samuel's sons were unfaithful. Finally, we have a faithful son who cares about what his father uh, is doing, who cares for his father's animals. Uh, And uh, we've had so many sons who bring shame to their fathers. Now we meet a man who Saul must have been about 40 at this point. He is faithful and he is obedient to his father. His father, we find, Kish, has lost his donkeys. Imagine a business owner today losing a fleet of Suburbans or or a fleet of Peterbilt, uh, 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 Tractor trailer trucks. Uh, imagine, imagine losing all of this property. But more than that, donkeys were princely animals, and so they would have been worth a great deal of money. So Saul is a good man who looks after his father's animals, like other good men. Moses looked after his father-in-law's animals. Joseph tended to his father's flocks. David tends to his father's animals, like other good sons. Saul is a good son. Though, there are a couple of humorous twists here to Saul's story. Uh, The other guys who take care of their father's animals are taking care of sheep. (laughs) Saul is taking care of donkeys. He's hunting down, when we meet Saul, he's hunting down a bunch of wild asses, which seems to make him much more suitable for Israel at this point than a shepherd. (laughs) Israel isn't acting like docile, peaceful sheep. Israel is currently acting like a bunch of wild asses. Who have just run off and who are without uh, any boundaries. And so here is Saul at the beginning of his story, hunting down something he can't find. At the this bookends the end of Saul's story, where he's hunting down someone he can't find, which is David. It's, it's kind of this bookend uh, to Saul's life. Nevertheless, it's his father's wayward donkeys that are going to providentially bring Saul down to Samuel's hometown to uh, bring him into contact with Samuel. When Saul and his servant end up far away from home, we get all these details. They looked here and they couldn't find the donkeys. They looked over here and they couldn't find the donkeys. They went this far and they couldn't find the donkeys. And then they come to Saul's, I'm sorry, Samuel's hometown. And that's where Saul begins to be worried about his father. Saul is conscientious and he knows, dad's gonna stop worrying about the donkeys and he's gonna start worrying about us. We're so far from home and we've been gone for so long. He knows that he needs to hurry home, but first, he says, it'd be a good idea to stop and check with the local man of God, Samuel, see if I can get some direction and some counsel. But he doesn't want to appear before the prophet of God. He doesn't want to come before the presence of God empty-handed. He knows God repeatedly says in his law, God says, do not appear before me empty-handed. Don't come before me without a sacrifice or something. Don't come before me without an offering but he also knows that they're out of provisions. They don't have anything left. So the servant says, ah, I I, I got it. I got a quarter of a a shekel of silver and we'll give that as an offering. And they said, well, that's going to have to do. And they go up to the city where Samuel is. This is a window into Saul's mind and his heart. He is a respectful man. He's not going to appear before God's presence in in the presence of Samuel without an offering. He is He is respectful and deferential. I've told a few of you about this, so forgive me for repeating it, but there was this video that went around of uh, the Queen of England visited several of the patients in the hospital who were injured in that bombing at a concert over there in London several weeks ago. And the Queen of England was visiting the families in the hospitals. and, uh, And if the Queen of England showed up, you know, I think, boy, she's coming. Well, I better get cleaned up. I better put on something nice. I better stand up, you know, stand at attention. Well, the video, the, the news cameras follow the queen into these hospital rooms. And the parents are like wearing sweatpants and sweat clothes. I know they've been through a tragedy. I know that, I know that they are going through an unbelievably difficult time. But, but they're sitting like with their arms crossed and leaned back in the chairs. And, and the children uh, are, are, are there as well. And the queen is asking them questions. And their answers are like one word. They're like, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, sure, yeah. And I can't do a British accent, but in their own accent, uh-huh, uh-huh, and yeah, to the Queen of England. You don't, say, you don't stand up and say, yes, ma'am? Can, can, you, can you get out a yes, ma'am? You think maybe? Queen of England? <laughs> if we can't say yes ma'am to the queen of England i mean it's just, every once in a while you just get a little window into where we are socially right and, and where our, where the western civilization is heading um it uh anyway maybe it doesn't strike you as that big of a deal but it certainly seemed very odd to say yeah and uh-huh to the uh to the queen of England um you can hunt that down and maybe tell me i'm off my rocker uh see if uh see if i'm wrong about that but Saul is a respectful man. Saul, Saul is a humble man. And he knows that there's a decorum. When I go stand in the presence of God, you've got to act a certain way. And one of those things is I don't come empty handed. I'm going to come with an offering when I come before the presence of God. Now I want to stop here and make sure that before we go any further in this story, that at the outset, I want us all to understand and know that Saul is the best man for the job at this time. He is the man. He is the man that God had set apart for this purpose. And Saul is God's gift to Israel. God doesn't say, okay, you want a king? I'm telling you what this king is going to be like. You reject my kingship. You reject my man, Samuel. You want a king? I'll tell you what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you the biggest drunkard. I'm going to give you the biggest brawler. I'm going to give you an idolater. I'm going to give you an abuser. I'm going to give you a glutton. I'm going to get the worst possible man for the job, and I will show you You're going to do this to me? You're going to do this to my servant? I'm going to get you the biggest fool I can find, and I'm going to shove it in your face until it comes out your nose and ears. But that's not what the Lord does. Saul was a humble man. He was the right man for the job, and he started out well. We still can't have a son of Judah, but we're going to get the next best thing. What this means is that God is never spiteful. God is not vindictive, God is not malicious. The people may deserve to be treated harshly after what they've asked for and how they've asked for it, but God does not respond in kind. God does not take their spite and turn it around into spite. He doesn't take their disrespect and turn it around into disrespect and maliciousness toward them because that's not what God's like. Well, he's not like us because that's what we do, right? We are vindictive and hateful. If someone abuses us or someone takes advantage of us or offends us in some way, we want to be sure that they get what's coming to them, right? We want them to hurt as much as we think they've hurt us. We want them to fail. We want them to suffer. We want to see their life swirl down the drain because they took my parking spot or they bumped into me or they you know, said something I didn't like. God is not like that. God is not like us and I know that he's not spiteful and I know that he's not vindictive and I know that he's not malevolent because of things like this and I also want you to know that this is what Jesus is like that that God shows us who he is all throughout the Bible and the God of the Old Testament is not some hateful mean old man And then he sends his son Jesus to kind of smooth everything over. God has always been like this. And he shows himself to us through Jesus. Jesus shows us what God is like. Jesus shows us the heart of God. So what you can know is that if you're suffering right now, or if you're struggling with something, it's not because God's playing a game of gotcha. God isn't getting back at you for some sin that you've repented of and holding it over your head just so he can watch you squirm. You might be dealing with the effects of sin. You might be dealing with the effects of foolishness or you might be dealing with the results of sins of others toward you or you might just be sharing in the sufferings of Christ if you're suffering, but God is not playing with you. God is not toying with you. God is not being mean-spirited or hateful toward you. He loves you. You are his treasure. You are his prize possession. And he is not vindictive. And he is not mean. Here he has an opportunity to be very mean. And he's not. We need to make a clear distinction there and know this about God. Now, I want to read the next chunk of the story. I want to stop here and there. And I want you to pay attention to all of the uh, coincidences. We read about coincidences when we studied Ruth, right? Ruth just happened just by luck of the draw, came across the field of Boaz, right? Uh, well, look at, the, look at the happenstances and the coincidences here in this story that, uh, that, that Saul just happened to end up in the hometown of Samuel, and Samuel just happened to be preparing a feast when Saul got there. And then, and then wonder and think and meditate on, what does this mean about all the little coincidences of our lives? Is God not also working through our each little step to, to bring us to uh, glory and, and bring us into contact with the people who need us and whom we need. Okay, I'm gonna read this next chunk, beginning verse 11. As they went up the hill to the city, this is Saul and his servant. As they went up to the hill to the city, they met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? Gotta stop right there. All right, we got women and we got a well. What's next? A wedding. All the time, right? You got women, you got, well, what's next? A wedding. Well, we don't get a wedding here. We did in Isaac and Rebecca. We did with Jacob and Rachel. We did with Moses and Zipporah. We had women and well, a wedding followed. Um, Well, this is not really an exception though. Saul is going up to a wedding feast of sorts. He's gonna be wedded to Israel. He's going to be the husband of Israel. He's gonna be the caretaker and protector of Israel. So he is headed to a wedding feast, just not the conventional one that we're used to seeing. So verse 12, and they answered them and said, yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today he came to the city because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up for about this time, you will find him. So they went up to the city and as they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, Yahweh had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came saying, This is what Yahweh told Samuel. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin and you shall anoint him commander over my people Israel that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines for I have looked upon my people because their cry has come to me. So when Samuel saw Saul, Yahweh said to him, there he is, the man of whom I spoke to you this one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, please tell me, where is the seer's house? Samuel answered Saul and said, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for you shall eat with me today and tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them for they have been found. And on whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and all your father's house? And Saul answered and said, am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel? And my family, the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion which I gave you of which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took up the thigh with its upper part and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, here it is, what was kept back? It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you since I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Yahweh had told Samuel ahead of time that this is the day that he's going to meet the man who is supposed to be the next leader of Israel. And so Samuel goes ahead and he offers a big sacrifice and he prepares a big feast for the new commander of Israel. And when they first meet, Saul is still worried about the donkeys. But Samuel tells him, relax, don't be anxious. The, The donkeys have been recovered. Samuel also tells him that all the desire of Israel rests on him. You're not going to have to worry about donkeys anymore. All of your, all of your needs are going to be taken care of. Everything is going to be okay. And Saul responds humbly. He says, I'm a Benjamite. I'm of the smallest tribe and one of the smallest families in the tribe. I'm not someone coming from a big city or a strong people. So I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how you can pick me. Remember that the tribe of Benjamin recently was nearly wiped out. Remember uh, in judgment, God uh, almost destroyed completely the tribe of Benjamin, until until they were uh, recently, very recently, uh, resurrected. And so Saul is aware of this judgment, and he's not really interested in self-promotion or any pretension. He doesn't think he deserves anything, and that puts him in a category of very meek and humble men. Who else rejected God's first uh, uh, foray, God's first invitation to serve? Well, Moses said, "I'm." I, I can't do this. Gideon says, oh, I, I can't do this. And of course they prevailed mightily. Saul is in that, in that category. Now at the feast, after the sacrifice that Samuel has prepared, Samuel gives, gives Saul the priestly portion of the sacrifice. The, the leg and the thigh of the animal was supposed to go to the priest. That was what uh, God's law uh, indicated. Why does the priestly portion go to Saul? Well, it's obvious that Israel's king is supposed to serve as a kind of priest. He's supposed to be a household servant of God, like the priest. He's supposed to be a caretaker of God's people. Later, Saul is going to be anointed with oil too, just the way a priest was anointed with oil. All these things point to the fact that even though Israel wants a king like the nations, God is gonna give them a king like a priest. That's God's intention. He's going to be like a priest. He's going to be a servant, not a despot over them. At least that's how Saul is going to start out. Saul is getting all this preferential treatment. He's getting the finest seat. He's he's getting the best meat. He's getting the best choice of food, the best place to sleep, we find out in the next verse. Verse 25. When they had come down from the high place into the city, Samuel spoke with Saul on the top of the house. And that's the best room. That's where you want to sleep, on the top of the house. They arose early, and it was about the dawning of the day that Samuel called to Saul at the top of the house saying, get up, that I may send you on your way. And Saul arose, and both of them went outside, he and Samuel. And as they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us. And he went on, but you stand here a while that I may announce to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because Yahweh has anointed you commander over his inheritance? Samuel anoints Saul and he kisses him, uh, which according to Psalm 2 is what you do to the anointed one. And he tells him to watch for three things. He's going to give him three signs. Just like Gideon got signs from the Lord, just like Moses got signs from the Lord, from the Lord to confirm his calling. Now Samuel offers uh, Saul three things to confirm his calling as king. Uh, Verse two of of 10. When you have departed from me today, you will find two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they will say to you, the donkeys which you went to look for have been found. And now your father has ceased caring about the donkeys and is worrying about you saying, what shall I do about my son? On his way home, Samuel says, you'll pass by Rachel's tomb. This reminds us of Rachel's death. And remember, Rachel died after giving birth to Benjamin. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. The whole motif here is the resurrection of the tribe of Benjamin, the redemption of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Rachel, who had been this this tribe that had been judged to the point of extinction, but now is coming back strong. Benjamin, remember, along with Levi and Judah, are the only tribes who make it through the Babylonian captivity. They're the only tribes left when we get to the New Testament. And we're thankful for the redemption and the resurrection of the tribe of Benjamin because it gives us another man named Saul, many centuries later, who becomes the Apostle Paul, right? Here's another Saul of Benjamin, who we get in the New Testament. So so here is the here is the sign that he gets here. Um, the men at Rachel's tomb will announce that the donkeys have been found and you don't have to worry about it anymore. The message is, Saul, you are being relieved of your former responsibilities to the house of your father and now you're being given new responsibilities. Verse three, then you shall go on forward from there and come to the terebinth tree at Tabor. These three men are gonna, uh, there are three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread and another carrying a skin of wine and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive from their hands." Men will be bringing bread and wine and goats to sacrifice and offer to worship God. And they're gonna share with you, Saul, what they're bringing to give to the Lord. But they won't give you everything. They're gonna have bread and they're gonna have wine, they're gonna have goats, but but you're gonna get some bread and not all of it. You're gonna get some of the bread you're not going to get any of the wine, you're not going to get the goats. Well, first of all, God is going to provide for your physical needs. This is the message here. God is going to take care of you, but he's not going to give you everything. You can't take everything that belongs to God. God still gets his portion. They give him bread, but not wine. Why don't they give him any wine? Well, wine is celebratory. Wine brings rest. You drink wine after you finish your work. Saul hasn't even started his work. But you do eat bread at the beginning of the day. You do eat bread before you work. That gives you strength to do work. You eat bread every morning, right? Donut, bagel, toast, pancake. You eat a bowl of bread, oatmeal, or cereal. Is wet bread in a bowl with marshmallows? You eat bread to start the day. Bread is, gives you strength for the day. And so Saul's work is just beginning. And so he gets bread. He doesn't get the wine. He doesn't get the goat. The message here, though, is God is going to provide for his physical needs. And then, and then one last sign, verse 5. <clears throat> After that, you shall come to the hill of God where the Philistine garrison is. And it will happen when you come there to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a stringed instrument, a tambourine, a flute, and a harp before them. And they will be prophesying. Then the spirit of Yahweh will come upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. And let it be when these signs come to you that you do as the occasion demands, for God is with you. So you're gonna to come to an old Philistine garrison, but there's no, uh, no Philistines there. This place has been conquered by God's glory cloud, uh, an orchestra of prophets singing and making noise, a loud procession. And when Saul sees them, the spirit of Yahweh will come upon him and he will be changed into another man. The promise here is that God is not only going to provide for your spiritual needs, not only is he giving you a new vocation, but he's going to give you all of your spiritual gifts that you need for your work. Each sign that he gives him comes with a different promise. And then comes one warning, verse 8 you shall go down before me to Gilgal. And surely I will come down to you to offer burnt offerings and make sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait till I come to you and show you what you should do. Now It's going to be a very long time before this happens. But Samuel says, one day you're going to come to Gilgal and you're going to meet me there to offer sacrifices. So when you get there, you have to wait on me. You have to wait seven days. Well, if Saul is a new Adam, Israel is being given another chance. The spirit of life has been blown into Saul's nostrils, just like Adam. He's given work to do, just like Adam. He's given these privileges and promises, but he's also being given a warning, just like Adam. And the warning is, when it comes time to sacrifice, wait for the priest. Don't don't plow ahead. And the question now is, is Saul going to pass the test or is he gonna fail the test like Adam did? You remember that when we finally get to chapter thirteen and this event happens, Saul does not wait on Samuel and he starts the sacrifice and then Samuel shows up. He didn't wait. And we'll we'll look back to this when we get there. But here are the signs and there's the warning. Um let me let me hurry up. And we'll finish this section. This is all one long narrative. It's so hard to break up, so so I'm moving quickly, but I wanna I wanna get through this. Verse nine. So it was when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. And when they came there to the hill, there was a group of prophets to meet him, and the Spirit of God came upon him. And the prophet and, and he prophesied among them. And it happened when all who knew him formally saw that he indeed prophesied among the prophets, that the people said to another, what is this that has come upon the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Then a man from there answered and said, but who is their father? Who is the father of the prophets? Well, it's Samuel who has revitalized Israel, who started a school of the prophets. This is also the theme of adoption that we've been looking at so far. Samuel is the new adopted father of Saul. Saul. Therefore, it became a proverb. It's Saul also among the prophets. And we'd finished prophesying. He went to his high place. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servants, where did you go? Saul's uncle? We haven't heard from uncle yet. We've been talking about the father the whole time. Why do we suddenly meet Saul's uncle? Why does he deal with his uncle now? Well, again, Samuel is his father. Samuel is his uh, uh, adopted father. Saul is the adopted son. It's that theme we've looked at from the very beginning. So he said, Saul's uncle says, where did you go? And Saul says, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel and Saul's uncle said, tell me please what Samuel said to you. So Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel said. This is all private. It's quiet. It's kept hush-hush. Saul doesn't say anything about being anointed king. He's humble. He doesn't parade the fact that these great things are happening. He holds it all close to the chest. And this, again, is what makes him the right man for the job. Look at what we've read about him so far. His heart was changed. His spirit was revived. He was made into a new man, a new Adam. He was given everything that Adam had lost. He's filled with God's Holy Spirit. He's given a new heart. By all accounts, Saul is the ideal king for Israel. He's a good son. He comes from a good family. He has suffered both in the judgment of his tribe and he suffered under the oppression of the Philistines. Um, He is humble, he has good gifts, he's respectful, he's deferential to those in authority. God has given him new responsibilities to go with this new heart, and God has promised to take care of his physical needs and his spiritual needs. He is the best possible man for the job. Now that he has all this, we get to see what he does with it, but not today. We'll save that for a different time. Where does he go with all of this privilege that God has given him? Where, he's, where has he taken all of this opportunity? As we learn more about this man, though, it's apparent Saul is not static. He's not a robot. He moves from obscurity to grace to judgment and wrath. But he didn't have to stay in wrath. Remember, David sinned but was forgiven because he repented. Saul is given this mountain of blessing, but he's going to throw it all away in belief and impenitence. That's the bigger picture. Let me leave you with one small meditation one small thought. Here is God once again accomplishing big things with little, common, ordinary circumstances. And it poses a question for us. What is God doing? And what is he accomplishing through all the little things in my life and in your life? God sent Saul, this is hilarious. God sent Saul on a fruitless search for donkeys, and he comes back home, a chosen king. Some days it feels like, and some days we certainly are on a wild donkey chase. You don't know whether the thing that you're doing is ever gonna pay off. You don't even know if you're on the right path. You're not sure that any of this is gonna bear fruit. But even the little frustrations and the, and the open-ended questions and the, the mysteries and the struggles, they're all orchestrated by God to bring all things to glory. You don't even know all that you're accomplishing through your daily, faithful, ordinary work. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. Just do what you're supposed to do, and God brings glory. Uh, Dad's donkeys are gone. What do we do? Well, we go after them. We go, we go find them. Will we find them? I don't know, but we gotta go look. That's the right thing to do. We just have to be faithful and do what we're supposed to do, which is why we aren't, as Christians, pragmatists. We can't choose to be faithful only when we see results. We don't stop being faithful when it looks like a thing isn't working. God didn't tell you to be faithful only when you see fruit. He he didn't tell you to be faithful only when you see results. No, go chase the donkeys and leave it to God to see how he's going to bring glory and blessing out of it. Leave the results to him. You be faithful. You do what you're called to do every day. That's the message there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for your word, and we pray that it's efficacious. uh, Even though we've finished our study for today, continue to marinate our hearts and our minds in the things we've heard and the things we've read today. Continue to make applications throughout the week. And Father, bring us more and more, conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. And now bless and strengthen us as we go through the rest of today. In Jesus' name, amen.